The following Knowledge at Wharton podcast is brought to you by the 2007 Wharton Economic Summit, being held April 12th and 13th in Philadelphia. Get the latest industry insights and business knowledge from 30 faculty-moderated panels. For event details, please visit 125th.wharton.upenn.edu forward slash summit. That's 125th.wharton.upenn.edu forward slash summit. If you go to Amazon.com and search for books about venture capital, you get 14,114 responses, and that includes many textbooks. Andrew Metrick, a professor of finance at Wharton, has just written a new book on the subject titled Venture Capital and the Finance of Innovation. Unlike the thousands of other books on the subject, though, this one offers a different approach, especially in areas such as valuing startup companies and IPOs. Knowledge at Wharton spoke to him about his new book and also about hedge funds, which are in the news almost every day these days. Uh, Many thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, As you just heard, there are more than 14,000 books on Amazon.com that deal with venture capital. Could you tell us a little bit about what makes your book different? Well, I think the main difference is that my book takes a quantitative approach. And that quantitative approach has two main features. One is that uh, the book is closely uh, rooted in the data. So what kind of evidence do we have about performance? What kind of evidence do we have about what happens to companies after venture capitalists invest in them? Uh, A lot of statistics and a lot of information that would help a decision maker kind of root their decision in, in what we know historically. So that's one aspect that's quantitative. The second aspect is in actually valuing the companies, in thinking about what they're worth, whether to invest in them, we take a uh, finance framework, a finance approach, the same way that an investor would look at a public company or that we recommend and we teach at Wharton uh, that a CEO should look at an investment his company is making. So uh, though that's really the way in which it's different. Most of the books that are out there are going to, I think, tell sometimes very interesting stories about uh, what different people have done and call upon experience uh, in a way that tries to give people a sense of what it is to be a venture capitalist. But this book is really quantitatively based. You also have a quick way to value IPOs. Could you explain that a little? Sure. Um, So in the course of making an investment decision, a venture capitalist has to imagine, what will this company be worth upon a successful exit? Uh, And then they have to try to estimate what's the probability of success and discount all of that back to today, since we are years from that success. In trying to think of what a successful exit would look like, successful exit is usually an IPO, so we need a way to say, okay, what will a company be worth at IPO when that IPO might be four or five years from now? That same technique can be applied to IPOs at the instant that they go public. What makes the approach a little bit different than what's usually done is that it is, uh, just as I said before, a quantitative approach rooted both in data. What do we know about other companies that have had IPOs? How fast do they grow in the five to seven years after their IPO? When do they end up looking like other companies in their industry? And what is a very fast growth rate? What would it look like? And pulling all of those things together into a discounted cash flow analysis. Discounted cash flow analysis is a common thing to be using uh, for valuation, but it's not used that often for IPOs. 
Uh, even before a company can go through an IPO, though, uh, it, it goes through the startup phase. And one of the hardest things is how do you value a startup? Uh, especially in the technology area, this can be extremely difficult. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I agree. That's a very, very difficult thing. And what I'm trying to do in the book and in the course that we teach here at Wharton is to give people an idea of how they could put some bounds on that valuation. How can we learn from the thousands and thousands of startups that have gone before what a wonderful performance looks like, what an average performance looks like, uh, so that we're not just staring off into space putting our finger in the air and trying to gauge uh, which way the wind is blowing. And so so I think that problem is very difficult. I think that people who are great at it will become very, very successful. And this is really just an attempt to give people the tools so that they can take their natural abilities and become great at it. So what kind of tools can they use? Uh, spreadsheets and, and, and some common sense is what I've heard. That yes, you, that's really you, you, probably you the combination. So, there, so as it stands, they're using common sense. And the idea in taking a, a more academic approach is to not throw away the common sense. A lot of times we think that, well, uh, uh, academics are just saying plug things into models and it's garbage in, garbage out. And I'm <laughs> sensitive to that critique. So instead what we're trying to do is – figure out a way to frame people's common sense, to take their common sense and filter it through data and through standardly used tools uh, so that they can put a, a, quantitative, uh, a, a quantitative framework onto their common sense. I call one of the models in the book the reality check model because it enables you to take what you already know and kind of crank it through uh, a standard framework so that you can put a reality check on your valuation. One of the difficult challenges that venture capitalists face, especially when they're flooded with so many business plans, is figuring out which companies they fund are going to lose money, which will make moderate sums of money, and which ones will be blockbusters. Do you offer, or does your book offer any suggestions about how VCs can predict how well their investments will do? Uh, on, I agree with you. That is the greatest challenge. And uh, I think actually that a lot of that is more the art of being a great venture capitalist than it is the science. Uh, what the book, I hope, enables people to do is that when, when their artist intuition is telling them that this company is going to do really, really well, they can put some science on what really, really well would mean. Um, but I think when, when a, a wonderful manager comes in front of you and says, I have this great idea, deciding whether this idea truly has a huge market and whether or not this person can pull it off, a lot of that is art. And so I, I, I think that I would be stretching if I said that my book tells people how to do that. Uh, I think if anyone had a magic formula for that, they probably wouldn't put it in a book. Uh, <laughs> but instead, what, what, what we do do is we enable people who are developing their intuition for those things to, to again, give their intuition some backbone. So based on what you just said, would, would I be right in assuming that this book is not just for students? It's also uh, you, you have material there that could be helpful to uh, venture capitalists and also to entrepreneurs? Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, but I, I, I certainly hope the book is useful to, to those other than students. But I've learned through hard experience that 
um, since I spend all my time talking to students and teaching students, that that's the audience that I should write for. And if I try to write for an audience that I'm really not qualified to write for, I'm certain to mess it up for everybody. So instead, I wrote a book that I know will communicate with students uh, that has equations in it that would be a book that, that as a pure trade book uh, wouldn't fly. And I hope that given that it has a cohesive framework and it has a specific audience in mind, that people with an academic bent from outside that audience would benefit from the book. Let's look at hedge funds for a minute. Lately, sure. there have been loud demands that hedge funds should be regulated. And in fact, when the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, was in Germany recently, he said he feels scared when he looks at the hedge fund industry. Do you share that view? Uh, yes, I think that that, is a, uh, that that would be a very good fear to have if someone were a Treasury Secretary or any other senior policymaker. Uh, they are controlling well north of a trillion dollars worldwide, and that gets amplified tremendously by the by the uh, uh, the leverage that they take on. Uh, and a lot of their trades and a lot of what they do is opaque. We don't really know what what they're doing, and there's a tremendous amount of uh, counterparty long counterparty chains in the industry. So when we saw long term capital management collapse nine years ago. Uh, this immediately made people concerned that m maybe this could bring the whole financial system down with it. And while a crisis really was averted then, we still don't know a whole lot more about what the chances are of such a crisis. So I think that uh, the secretary is, is wise to be concerned. And uh, until we know more, I don't think how I, I don't see how anybody could say they're not concerned. We just know so little and we can tell that there are some potential dangers there. You know, a lot of people uh, have been asking about uh, more regulation for hedge funds. Uh, other people don't think that's such a good idea. Uh, uh, I, I was wondering what your take on that whole issue is and whether you think self-regulation uh, is, is the right solution or does the government need to have more proactive controls? Well, I, I don't see how significant regulation could actually be implemented at all. I would imagine that if uh, the U.S. government were, tried to regulate hedge funds in, in any way that really kept them from performing to the level they want to perform, they'll just all move to the Cayman Islands. So I, I, I think that we're better off with with extremely light forms of regulation that at least enable the hedge funds that are that that are out there to uh, not hide from us. Um, and what I would add on top of that is I would echo a suggestion of, of Andy Lowe, who is a former Wharton professor now at MIT, uh, who has called for something akin to what we have for plane crashes. So when there is a plane crash, we go in there with the team and we try to figure out what happened. We really look through everything and try to and, – and then publicize the results. This is why this crash occurred. This is why this – amaranth, for example, went down and that the only thing that a hedge fund really be required to do is to agree that uh, when they – if they have a shutdown with, a, with certain rules attached to them, they're larger than a certain amount and they have a certain amount of outflows, that they simply agree that – Today, in advance, if that happens, they'll open their books after they're closed. But but just by looking at why plane crashes occur, it doesn't seem to prevent them. Oh, well, it certainly has reduced them. I think people believe very strongly that, for example, uh, uh, I'll give you an example. And the example is that, 
that there was a horrible plane crash many years ago, and it was a U.S. Air plane crash from a plane that had been de-iced that went back out onto uh, the tarmac and waited again to take off. And then when it took off, turns out it had re-iced again. Uh, and after that, they learned what the problem was, which is you can't de-ice something before it leaves the gate and think that that's enough, that you must de-ice aircraft right before they take off. And so we haven't had a crash of that sort since then. Are there an equal number of crashes? I mean, are crashes occurring at the same frequency, but for different reasons? I guess I'm, what I'm trying to get at is just analyzing what happens when a hedge fund gets into trouble. Does that necessarily mean it's going to prevent future? Well, we blowouts? don't know, but I think that there is strong evidence, and 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 here I'm I'm going too far afield from what I know. But the the there has been no major uh, there has been no major accident related commercial airliner crash in an extremely long time. So so it's always hard to extrapolate from very small samples because there was never a high rate of crashes. But I think that most industry experts would tell you that we are better at preventing airline crashes. Now, will that same thing happen for hedge funds? We don't know. Uh, but, but it's actually, a, I would think, a relatively cheap experiment. And I would imagine that the more tighter uh, control that we might think that that we would all perhaps feel more comfortable with would be an illusion, because I think were the government to say everyone must register and everyone must open their books to us every two years or something like that, they would all move away, because this is this is capital. It doesn't need to be physically located, uh, uh, legally domiciled in the United States to be effective. Uh, let's speak, continue to speak about transparency and the opaque uh, you know, nature of uh, hedge funds that you referred to earlier. Uh, as we know, on February 8th, uh, the Fortress Investment Group went public, and it was the first U.S. hedge fund manager that went public. Uh, do you expect other hedge funds will follow, and is this a move towards greater transparency? Well, certainly... Um when someone is successful at something, others will follow. So I certainly expect that that some others will follow. I am skeptical about whether you will ever see very much of the industry publicly held for two reasons. Number one, I don't think transparency is good for them. They, the transparency may be good for us uh, as outsiders who would like to regulate or watch over the industry, but I don't think transparency is good for people who want to make money and make it very fast. Uh, so, so I would expect that many of them would resist that. Number two, I think that when hedge funds are successful, and again, there's there's a large academic debate about just how successful they are as an industry. I certainly think the, the, that there are a few folks out there that are doing very, very well. But as an industry, it's hard to say. Um, but when they are successful, in part, they're successful because they have very, very high, strong incentives for the decision makers. And uh, the, the decision makers who are already very wealthy individuals are capturing a lot of the value of their success. And I think that as organizations like this, which historically have been very small and closely controlled, as they go public or sell stakes in themselves, many of those incentives become weakened. And I would be surprised if you would be able to sustain the kind of um, hunger and, and speed uh, of uh, nimbleness that you need to be successful as an investor in a larger uh, organization where the ownership and the control of the organization were more separate. When hedge funds invest in a company, they have the reputation of trying to make a quick killing. Is this aggression good for shareholders? 
Well, I guess there, there's two types of quick killings, right? There's the trading quick killing, which is the historical domain of hedge funds and still their dominant domain, which is we think something is mispriced. And so we're going to go in and we think it's mispriced too high. Uh, so we're going to sell it short or we think it's mispriced uh, too low. So we're going to buy it. And I think that that for when they're taking advantage essentially as passive traders, getting in and out of things, trying to make money from mispricings, I think largely this has no effect on shareholders. Uh, that certainly we don't like to see our stocks go down, but we like to see them go up. And overall, we're in things because we expect them to be fairly priced. So I don't think the hedge funds have a very large effect on that. There's two other sources of, of uh, that I think might be related to your comment where where issues do come up, and I think one is negative and one is positive, there are hedge funds out there that have been accused of shorting company stocks and then actively working to get those stocks uh, down. Now, when there is some true malfeasance uh, on the part of companies and the hedge funds are working to uncover it, certainly the current shareholders in those companies are not pleased that that malfeasance has been uncovered, but the malfeasance itself is not the hedge fund's fault. When the hedge funds are actively working, as some uh, managers complain, to temporarily perhaps lower the value of a stock so that they can make money off of their shorts, that's more dangerous. Now, I have no doubt that this goes on uh, somewhat, but I don't think it. I, I do not think that this is the standard way that a lot of hedge funds are operating. There is a final. There's a third thing uh, here. The first being the standard trading in and out. The second, the shorting and going after people. The third thing is what we're now seeing, which are activist hedge funds. And the evidence, and there is some recent evidence uh, on on activist hedge funds, uh, Wei Jiang, who's currently visiting in the Wharton Finance Department, has written a paper on this, uh, showing that actually when hedge funds come in as activists, it's good for the other shareholders, that the, the ones that we're hearing about now that are coming in and jostling for change, that actually companies do well after they come in. So uh, it's a mixed bag, but I would guess that that overall – Prices are generally being moved more quickly to where they belong, and in cases where there are activists, they're doing good, and it's really only a small group uh, that might be engaged in manipulative activities that are harming other shareholders. uh, Thanks very much for speaking with us today. It was a pleasure having you. My pleasure. Thank you, McQuill and Ravi. Thank you. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. (laughs) 